Right, it's time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. So it was a key news conference there yesterday with Dr. Bonnie Henry. And as you alluded to yesterday, you thought, don't, you know, she just might open those gyms mm. back up. And that's exactly what she did yesterday. Yeah, starting uh, tomorrow, they can uh, reopen subject to more rigorous safety plans. Uh, again, I think it's a seven meter uh, distance between, in social distancing around, around a person. So 2.5 meters either way. Um, While you're working out on the treadmill? Yeah, I'm not sure how, okay. how uh, rigidly that's going to be enforced. Yeah. Um, I think maximum 25 people in a, in a facility. So some gyms are going to um, be perfectly fine with this. Some are probably going to have a bit of a struggle uh, with with um, larger places with, with uh, fewer people on hand. But, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a very effective lobby from the gym and fitness center sector. Uh, nationally, but they haven't succeeded in Ontario. Ontario still has gyms closed, yeah. as does, I think, Quebec. But they were able to get through to uh, Bonnie Henry, who's a bit of a, from what we gather, a bit of a gym rider herself. I mean, she she likes to work out in, in gyms and such. So they were able to convince public health that they could open safely. Okay, here's Bonnie Henry on this point yesterday, talking about reopening gyms and fitness centers. I'm taking the cautious step of reopening gyms and exercise facilities with capacity limits and the continued use of the BC vaccine card. I think she's maybe swayed by the mental health argument too, Big right? part of it, yeah. Uh, mental, protecting mental health has long been a key cornerstone of BC's strategy under her, uh, her uh, leadership. Um, you, again, you can't uh, really downplay that. And, and mental health is a big, and that was the, one of the arguments the gym lobby was making. It was yeah. a very effective argument. Right. Right. And that's not the only thing that came up in this news or yesterday. No. There was also talk about the pressures on the hospital system right now, right? Yeah. Adrian Dix pointed out uh, last week, 17, almost 18,000 healthcare workers were sick. Uh, so they weren't in the system. They were home sick probably most with Omicron, but other ailments as well. That compares to about seven to 8,000 normally before the pandemic or even last year when we didn't have the Omicron variant uh, being transmitted so widely. So 18,000 people. Now, it's less than the 20,000 people the week before, so hopefully that number continues to decline. But when you put that against the entire system, you see why uh, we're seeing surgeries rescheduled uh, increasingly in yeah. larger numbers. And it's just uh, when you take 18,000 people, many of them nurses, doctors out of the system, that's going to have a huge impact on uh, the hospital system. The other thing yesterday, the biggest single-day increase in ICU patients in months went up by 13, which I think was the most since early September, late August which is concerning, and about uh, almost half of them were unvaccinated people. Okay, COVID in schools also addressed yesterday, and it was interesting, the province has now requiring school districts to collect data on their employees, including teachers, on their vaccine status. And Bonnie Henry was asked, why are you doing that yesterday? What did she have to say about that? Well, in her public health order, she views the lack of data associated with this situation as a health hazard, a public health hazard. And she has the power under the Public Health Act to take steps to um, deal with that. And so one of the steps she's taking is allow medical health officers in the regions to work with school districts to collect this data. The medical health officer can instruct the employer, which is the school district, to collect the vaccination status data of all staff, not just teachers, support staff and administration as well. And, and, and then potentially to use that as a vaccination mandate. We're not there yet. This is just the beginning of this. Uh, BCTF President Terry Mooring 
yesterday says she doesn't think this really changes anything. But it could change things if this data starts to get collected and then leads to a vaccination mandate. But again, we're not there yet. But that would be district by district, District by district, So we have one district so far that's kind of brought in like a semi-mandate in Delta. Delta. Do you think other school districts will follow? My understanding is other districts have asked um, the Health Ministry of Public Health for the ability to collect this information. But there's 60 school districts. I don't think there's going to be 60 vaccination mandates. Again, you look at geographically, Metro Vancouver, much stronger vaccination uh, buy-in by the the population than compared, say, to parts of the interior of the north. Okay, last night, B.C. Liberal Party leadership debate on Global B.C. 1. You were part of the coverage there Mm -hmm. last night. I, I watched a good chunk of that debate last night. It got it got pretty feisty at times, and as you said, it was going to be like a six-on-one dog pile. Yeah. Everyone going after Kevin Falcon. That's who, what happened. Yeah, and that's basically what it was. It was a team up against Falcon. Now have a listen to this. Now this is Liberal MLA Michael Lee uh, going after Falcon here on these allegations of fraudulent membership signups. Now have a listen to this. To Kevin. Instead of standing with all of the candidates here on this debate stage to ensure that members can have the confidence in the process to elect the next leader of our party. You accuse the party of racism, and you use racialized members of our party as a shield, which is just another example of the old style of politics that you have. Will you apologize to racialized British Columbians for using them as a shield to deflect the questions around your membership signups? All right, Kevin, go ahead. Sure. Um, I'm really surprised to hear you ask that question, Michael, quite frankly, because it was you and, as I understand, five other campaigns that tried to suggest there was fraud in the system. And you know as well as I do, Michael, that the party wrote to all of us and said there was absolutely no evidence of fraud in the memberships. Okay, so that guy... That, that got was, a little tense. That was the one heated moment in the entire debate, that, that, uh. that particular uh, interaction between Michael Lee and Kevin Falcon. You know, it's interesting, Falk, uh, Michael Lee was sort of a, the, the one point of aggression, aggressive attack was that particular instance. You go back to the last leadership debate in the previous leadership um, uh, race, back which ultimately elected Andrew Wilkinson. I remember uh, moderating that debate, and Michael Lee at that debate also went after very aggressively Andrew Wilkinson and Todd Stone and Diane Watts. It didn't work for him back then. I'm not sure this is going to work for him this time. He's he's playing to party members here. This isn't yeah. the general public. It's party members who are voting here. And I, I this seemed to be a little over the top yesterday with him. I think it smacked a little bit of desperation. Does he kind of, when he goes aggressively after the front runner on that, politically, do you kind of burn your bridges? Like if, if Falcon ends up as the leader, and who knows, maybe he's premier down the road, does he basically count himself out as being a cabinet minister or falcons that <laughs> well off. i think we're getting way ahead of ourselves in, in terms wow. of that but you're right i mean this this, this stuff isn't forgotten you know yeah. a lot of leadership stuff uh people hang on to the memories of what happens in leadership races and, and it's one thing to say we're all part of the same family when you start attacking each other the memories can be long okay speaking of um switchblade politics here going on let's go across the pond here the to boris. the united kingdom bojo there boris johnson really under pressure here to resign over the Partygate scandal, as it's been called, and some of his own conservative Mm -hmm. MPs now turning against him. Now, have a listen to this. This is conservative MP uh, David Davis in the House of Commons in in the United Kingdom going after his own leader, going after Boris Johnson here. Have a listen. Like many on these benches, I spent weeks and months defending the Prime Minister uh, against often angry constituents. I reminded them of his success in delivering Brexit 
and on the vaccine and many other things. But I expect my leaders to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yesterday, he did the opposite of that. So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him of Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. In the name of God, go. Fabulous stuff. you got to love the wow. uh, UK House of Commons. So, yeah, the blood's, blood's in the water. Sharks are circling here. Johnson this morning stood up in the House of Commons and said they're pulling back the restrictions. No more mass mandate. No more requirement to work from home. Everybody come to the office. So, which How is, do you analyze that? Is, I, that? is that part of a tactic to try and survive? Yep. I think he's, uh, he's trying to uh, placate his sort of right-wing base in that party who are against restrictions. And there have been some of his toughest critics as a result of, uh, you know, this par- party gate situation. But uh, he's in a desperate situation. I'm not sure he can hang on. Okay. I think the key will be that report that is going yep. to come out very soon on those parties the, the and whether gu- they broke the COVID rules. Guardian newspaper has a story out today saying the number of MPs who are signing letters uh, calling for his resignation is starting to increase significantly. I think they need 52 to trigger leadership. Conservative through. MPs. Conservative MPs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Labour Party is the least of his worries. It's his own party that's yeah. got, that uh, he has to deal with right now. Right, the knives coming out internally for him. Fascinating could, to could watch. Do him in for sure. All right, welcome back to the show. Keith Baldry is my guest. The phone lines are open. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Doug in Surrey. Hi, Doug. Go ahead. Good morning, Mike and Keith. Uh, Kevin Falcon is the leader of this province. He's about as useless as a screen door in a bathtub. And uh, every time I go through a turnstile over at King George Skytrain, uh, I think of how Kevin Falcon thought he would uh, uh, put the uh, the bite on uh, ferry baiters. They still push through them. He was the Minister of Transport, I believe it was at the time. Mm-hmm. As a Minister of Health, he was a dud. And I hope they butcher themselves and end up in the history books where they belong. Okay, well, you know, when he was transportation minister, he frequently says, I did a great job as transportation minister because I got the Canada Line built yeah. and they got all this other stuff built. Yeah, he, he likes to point out the Canada Line, the Kicking Horse Canyon Bridge, yeah. uh, the start of the Evergreen Line. Uh, so Falcon will take his uh, track record as transportation minister, I think, to the bank here. Uh, thing is more positive than good. It was evident in the debate last night. It's very much Falcon relying on his experience and track record and his opponents using those attributes as against him, as being this is not the way to renew the party by going back into the past yeah. and picking someone from the Campbell government. Yeah. We've got to look forward. So that's that's the debate and the issue a lot of liberals have to have to deal with themselves. Do you, do you take someone with a proven track record and a lot of experience but from a previous government, or do you go with someone who's new, who wants to lead the party into new areas. And we, we were talking during the break there about the potential for a surprise here, because if you go back to the last liberal uh, leadership contest, and a lot of people thought Diane Watts, mm-hmm. former Surrey mayor, former MP, would become the winner. And she was leading on the first, I think, the first and second yeah. ballot. And then, lo and behold, Wil- Andrew Wilkinson. Yeah, it's a preferential ballot. So uh, uh, yeah, the front runner can stall very yeah. quickly if you don't yeah. have that second and third choice support. And that's Kevin Falcon's probably chief worry. If he, d- if he can't pick this up on the first or second count, does he have enough uh, support from uh, as a second or third choice from other candidates' camps? And it was evident last night, not a lot of love there between Kevin Falcon and the other candidates, uh, particularly Lee and Alice Ross, I thought, and Renee Merrifield. 
Uh, so again, but they were all go they were all going after and Falcon. Everybody was going after Falcon, uh, but again, indication he's the front runner. They think he's the guy that oh, yeah. they, they have to topple and have to have to sort of uh, bring him down a notch or two. But again, because of the preferential ballot system, we've seen other conventions where uh, the front the first first count uh, leader stalls yeah. and doesn't pick it up uh, as they cross the finish line. Okay, that's uh, this will be decided in early February. So mm-hmm. we're getting closer to that. Casey on the line in Langley. Hi, Casey. Hey guys, how you doing? Good. Good. Go ahead. Hey, good. hey Keith, I was just wondering if you have like the numbers on the, the vaccinated people compared to non-vaccinated people that have died. Who died? Um, yeah. yeah. Like, like what's the what's the difference there? Right. Like I'm vaccinated, so. You know, just wondering what the difference is. Right? Yeah, so, so again, the vaccinated number of people in B.C. is huge. It's like 4.2 million people. The number of unvaccinated is small. It's about 350,000 people. But the unvaccinated have a disproportionately high number of uh, cases uh, in terms of testing positive, people in hospital, people in ICU, and people who die. Now, the vaccinated people can have uh, the majority in all those categories – but again, when you're dealing as a percentage of the 4.2 million, it's a much smaller percentage than the people who are unvaccinated. So it's like a the we get the stats every day. I haven't got it off the top of my head, but it's like 33 times more likely to be hospitalized if you're unvaccinated than if you're vaccinated. If you're vaccinated, you're you're part of a much vaster pool of people, right. and so you're not getting hospitalized or dying anywhere near the rate of unvaccinated people but it can still be a bigger number because you're part of a bigger pool right you need to understand the numbers and the statistics and how they work like so so some people will often email me and i'm sure you get them too saying like oh half the people in hospital are are vaccinated so oh the vaccines are not working no hang on a second you're, you have a ti- a small percentage of the population are unvaccinated, and then half of them are in hospital. Think about what you're saying here. Look at the numbers; they're disproportionately and they're higher. also they're also skewed towards age. People over the age of seventy are, by and large, the majority of people in ICUs, hospitals, and dying. And a lot of those people are fully vaccinated, but they have underlying health conditions, yeah. and they're also older. If you're ninety years old. And you have COVID nineteen. Uh, even if you didn't have COVID nineteen, you're probably gonna your fatality rate's gonna be high because you're over ninety years of age. I mean, people do die, but yeah. if you have COVID, you're, you're classified as a COVID nineteen death. Right. Okay. Let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Brad in Burnaby. Hi, Brad. Go ahead. Hey. Um. So I got my both my shots. I'm skeptical about the booster just because I like I know when this was first rolled out, I got it right away and. They said that it would, like, would stop transmission completely and all that. And I know it's kind of changed because they're learning more about it. But there's so many cases in the vaccinations. And I know people have gotten their boosters and they still got it. So like, it's not, it may be helping, but it's not fully stopping. It just seems very strange that they're still acting like it, it's the save-all, end-all. But there's so many cases, even though we have so many vaccinations. Keith? Yeah, well, uh, again, I think we're up to 1.3 million people who have got their third dose. Uh, there are a number of people with, with booster doses who have tested positive for COVID-19. Very few of those people are in hospital. Uh, but Omicron is very infectious. It, you know, Israel today reporting, even with four doses in Israel, which is the only country, I think, with four doses, they're still reporting a high incidence of Omicron transmission. What it does, if you get your booster dose, though, it really lessens your chances of going into hospital or the ICU. So, again, don't look upon Omicron as something that you're going to entirely avoid, but look upon it as something you want to avoid in terms of hospitalization. 